Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part one of the Gospel of John, chapter 20. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi, everybody. Welcome to John chapter 20 tonight. I'm going to start off with a famous artist, Roger van der Wieden of Belgium, and a very influential Northern Renaissance painter. And he had some amazing, amazing works, but he never signed his paintings. And so a lot of them have been lost, or we don't know his fame quickly faint because he didn't sign his things. Because I think he was painting using his gift for something else, maybe a higher beauty. And one of his pieces, the altarpiece of the Last Judgment, is a beautiful piece. It's huge. We talked about the Byzantine cross last week and the slanted footrest, how it's like a scale the good thief and the bad thief. Remember, Dismas went up to heaven, the good thief, where the bad thief went down, and so the Byzantine have the slanted footrest on their cross. Well, van der Wieden painted that, Michael the archangel, with a balance in his hand, the good thief going up and the bad thief, Gustus, going down. So that was interesting to see. There's another painting that he has in Madrid, Spain, called The Descent from the Cross. It's seven feet tall, eight and a half feet wide. It is spectacular of the descent from the cross, the deposition of Jesus from the cross. And we've been studying these characters in John's Gospel. There's nine in this composition. The emotion that he showed in these faces. Mary Cleopas, half-sister to the Virgin Mary, weeping in her white headdress with all the folds of fabric. And if you zoom in, you see the tears on her face in such realism. Even the pin in her headdress, just a lot of realism there. Next in the painting is John, the evangelist, who we're reading right now. And if we zoom into his face, we see his tears streaming down his face. He's supporting the Virgin Mother, who Jesus has just asked John to care for his mother at the foot of the cross. Mary has swooned. She's fainted. She is pale, and she's gone down, and John is grabbing her under the arm with both hands to help hoist her up. And then the skull at the bottom is the place of the skull, Adam's skull, Golgotha, we learned about last week. And then there's Mary of Salome, and she is younger, but you see her tears also. And next to her, Joseph of Arimathea in the red, and he's the one who gives Jesus his own tomb. It is a brand new tomb. It's never been used. We know that from Matthew's gospel. And next to him is Nicodemus in the fabulous embroidered fabric. He is wealthy. He's a Pharisee, as you remember. We hear three times about him. He's also supporting the corpse of Jesus with his hand holding up the legs. And you see his tears, Nicodemus who by the end loved the Lord greatly. Even the stubble on his chin is able to be noticed. A young man has climbed up the ladder, and he has three nails in one hand, and he's supporting the arm of Jesus with his other arm. And you'll notice the way the bodies of Mary and Jesus, they parallel one another in the stance of their bodies. There they are holding up that arm. Then we see a balding man behind Nicodemus, and he's holding something like 100 pounds of myrrh that Nicodemus has brought. 
We don't know who he is. Then there's Mary Magdalene on the outside, and she and Nicodemus are touching hands, and she's also weeping. We can see her tears for the Lord. So that is a beautiful painting. Jesus is dead, dead, dead. (laughs) And here's his corpse, pale. You see the wound in his side that he will still have in his glorified body tonight in John 20. The wound is bleeding. It's going down all the way, dripping the blood down his leg, very realistic to the wounds of his feet where the nails went. And then the two hands of Mary and Jesus in this limpid, elegant curve, mirroring, they're just a mirror of each other, Jesus and his mother. And what he was trying to show with their hands in this same position, Christ, his passio suffering, were her compassio, her compassion in his suffering. They're just mirroring each other. Now, also, the symmetry in their body She's just fainted. She has swooned, but she will be revived. He is dead, and they don't know that he will be revived at this point. He will be resurrected, but you just see the beautiful symmetry and parallelism that he's got going there. And then the brackets on the outside, John and Mary Magdalene kind of bracket in the whole painting, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful painting All right, so they're taking him down off the cross, and we were told that after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one because of fear of the Jews, asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed the body. And Nicodemus, who had come first to Jesus by night, came also bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing over a 100 pounds. Now, think of that, a hundred pounds of myrrh. They took the body of Jesus, they wrapped it in spices and linen cloths according to the burial custom of the Jews. We know about those burial customs of the Jews because of John's gospel. And it tells us that there was a garden, and remember that, a garden was the place where he was crucified, and in the garden, mentioned a second time, there was a new tomb, brand new, which no one had ever been laid in. We're told in Matthew's gospel, that's Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. So it, he came from a virgin womb. He'll go into a virgin tomb, a tomb that has never been touched And just as he came out of the virgin womb with no damage, no breaking of the seal of virginity, he'll come out of the virgin tomb with no damage. He will, will, as we see tonight, he can walk right through walls. He can blow off the, the stone that's there. The place of the skull, called Golgotha, is where the tomb of Jesus is and where he was crucified. And over that now is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Both the crucifixion site and the tomb are enclosed in this church, built over. And so, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, Shabbat, Sabbath, and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, they have a hundred pounds of myrrh, and that is a huge, huge amount, a very costly amount, because you remember just a few days ago in John chapter 12, there was a leader of costly aromatic nard called spike nard, and it was one liter, and Mary of Bethany was putting it on his feet and drying it with her hair. Martha was serving the dinner. Lazarus, the risen Lazarus, was at table. Mary of Bethany takes this costly nard, one pound, And the house was full of that perfume. And Judas didn't like that because he said this perfume could have been sold for 300 denarii. And that was one liter. 
Now Nicodemus has come with a hundred pounds of myrrh. That's an extravagant amount. It's enough for the burial of a king. And we first heard about Nicodemus in chapter 3, and there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus. He was a leader of the Jews. And then again in chapter 7, the Pharisee said to Nicodemus, surely he has not deceived you too. Has any one of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in Jesus? But this crowd, which does not know the law, they are accursed. And Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before, and who was one of them, asked, well, Our law does not judge people without first giving them a hearing to find out if what they're doing is is wrong, does it? And they replied, surely you are not following this Galilean. There's no prophet. You search and see the scriptures. There's no prophet from Galilee. But tonight we see that Nicodemus has come with a hundred pounds of myrrh to give this king a kingly burial. He does believe his conversion has grown throughout the whole gospel of John. This is the third time we see him. Now, myrrh is not native to Palestine, so it's extremely expensive. It could be in a solid form. And here's a painting of Nicodemus buying 100 pounds, and the servants are loading pounds of myrrh onto this cot so they can be carried to the grave. Or, and and when you walk through Jerusalem, spices are everywhere. It was on the ancient spice trade route. Spices were extravagant. They were worth a lot. And you'll just smell all the different smells as you're walking through. Nicodemus mixes this with aloe, which is native to Jerusalem. But myrrh was expensive because it had to come from the Horn of Africa. And it comes as a resin, but that resin can be extracted into an oil, which is even more expensive, the oil of myrrh. And it comes from the myrrh branch or the myrrh tree. And we know that Egyptians used to embalm their dead bodies, but John teaches us some things about Jewish burial, and it was custom for them to anoint with spices. And there's an anointing slab, an anointing stone that the body would be laid on, and the body could be anointed for burial. And if you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, you'll see the anointing stone where they laid Jesus, and you can venerate the stone. There's usually a a line there of people kissing and kneeling at the anointing stone of Jesus. So they prepared his body for burial, and the body would be anointed with spices wrapped in linen. And they were in a hurry because they needed to, twilight's 3 o'clock, and Shabbat, Sabbath would start at 6 p.m., so they needed to hurry and get this done. The women would come back early in the morning to anoint the body. There wasn't time. And so we hear about seven different myrrh-bearing women, and they're very highly revered, especially in the Eastern Orthodox Church, and Mary Magdalene is one of them. If... Spikenard, one pound was 300 denarii, 100 pounds of myrrh would be about 30,000 denarii. So it's an extravagant amount. And where was myrrh used in the Bible? Other places. In the Old Testament, the first time we hear about myrrh is when Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers in Genesis 37. And some Ishmaelites are walking by. His brothers have put him in a pit and they've sat down to eat. And the Ishmaelites come by bearing spices and balm and myrrh because they're going down to Egypt to sell it. And Jacob sends an extravagant gift later to Joseph and the basket contains myrrh. And then we hear Moses is told to use myrrh to make this exquisite anointing oil. The priesthood must have this oil to use in anointings. And it should have the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and cinnamon, and aromatic cane, and cassia, and olive oil. And is all to be as a special recipe that's to be mixed by a perfumer and to be a holy, holy, sacred anointing oil. And it would be the anointing oil throughout 
all generations, and it would be holy and holy unto the Lord. And we still see this tradition carried over into Catholicism when we have the annual Catholic Mass of the Chrism Oil, which will be the week of Holy Week when the bishop of every diocese breathes and blesses the the oil and breathes the Holy Spirit into the chrism oil to be used for all the healing sacraments of the church throughout the year. This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout all generations. It is holy and shall be holy unto the Lord. And that oil does contain myrrh. It's part of a special recipe. And you had it at your confirmation and you remember smelling And I remember as a little girl when I was confirmed, smelling that oil, and just I remember when my sons got it then, and I'd smell their forehead, and you just it just brings back. That's that's the myrrh, and that is usually mixed by nuns. That special chrism oil, it's a special recipe containing myrrh, that'll be used the entire year then. Also, the Psalms and Proverbs both talk about myrrh. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh. My garments smell of myrrh. So it is a exquisite spice. And in 1 Kings 4, 32, we're told that Solomon composed 1,005 songs. And in his estimation, he took his best songs, his best poetry, and they get collected into the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. And in that book is the most myrrh we've ever heard of in the entire Bible. But in ancient Israel, Jews were not allowed to read the Song of Solomon until they were at least 30 years old and married. So uh, it's a very um, sensual book, and the places and the way he uses myrrh uh, is very sensual. Today in Orthodox Jewish homes, the Song of Solomon cannot be read until one has been bar bat mitzvahed. So it is a, uh, it's a, it's a book about bridal and nuptial love. And I won't read all these because I don't want to blush, but the real racy ones... <laughs> The real racy ones are in chapter five. So why is everyone writing down Reed's Song of Solomon chapter five tonight? Um, but yeah, and there's a lot of myrrh in the Song of Solomon, the most in the whole Bible. But in the New Testament, there are only three mentions of myrrh. The first one is when Jesus is born and these kings come from the Orient from all over. They've traveled so far to come. They fall down on their knees and they worship this baby king and they bring him treasures of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And the, uh, the second time it's used in the New Testament is only in Mark's gospel. They give Jesus wine to drink that has been mingled with myrrh because myrrh has medicinal numbing qualities, and Jesus refuses to drink that wine. He will not numb the suffering that he endured for us. He will not take the myrrh. And then the third time we hear about myrrh in the New Testament is when Nicodemus comes at night and brings a mixture of myrrh and aloe, a hundred pound weight. Now, Here's something Nicodemus figured out. Remember in John chapter 3, Jesus answered Nicodemus, Amen, amen, I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. And Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can a person once grown be born again? I mean, surely he cannot reenter his mother's womb and be born again, can he? He just didn't get it. But now he gets it. Myrrh was used when Jesus was born the first time. And myrrh, he brings a hundred pounds of it when Jesus is going to be born again in the resurrection. There's a myrrh connection with Nicodemus. He gets it. Jesus answered, amen, amen, I say to you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. What is born of flesh is flesh. What's born of spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed when I told you you must be born from above. 
And Nicodemus said, how can this happen? And Jesus said, you're the teacher of all Israel and you don't get it, Nicodemus? Oh, but now he gets it. It's a bridegroom spice. This is a new covenant. This is the marriage night. It's also a kingly burial spice. But he's not going to stay buried for long because he's going to rise like he said he would. And he must have remembered what Jesus said, that Moses, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So Nicodemus is beginning to figure out that riddle. Jesus will be born again. The first birth with myrrh, the second birth, the born again with myrrh. Enough myrrh fit for a king or a heavenly bridegroom in a new marital covenant. Nicodemus gets venerated by both the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic Church, one on August 2nd, one on August 3rd. There is a place where he and Joseph of Arimathea are honored together, and the Franciscans have erected a church in their patronage there in that town. It's very close to Jerusalem, and inside is a beautiful work by Titian showing Jesus being taken off the cross and Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea burying him and anointing his body. There's a Pieta by Michelangelo there, Jesus being taken off the cross. And we also know, tradition tells us, that the relics of Nicodemus were found along with Stephen, the first martyr. Remember that? We've talked about that before, but he was a martyr and his bones were found with Stephen, the martyr, and Gamaliel, the rabbi who taught Paul, and Gamaliel's second son, Ababas. So in Roman Catholicism, he is considered a martyr. Both of them, Nicodemus and Arimathea, were both martyred and their feasts are celebrated on August 31st together as martyrs. So it's early on the first day of the week. It's still dark, and Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb. And Mary, called Magdala, whom seven demons have gone out of, we learn that in Luke. This is the same Mary. She's from a town called Magdala near Galilee. And we saw that she was standing at the foot of the cross this whole time. She's a faithful woman. She will not leave the side of Jesus. And it's the first day of the week. It's still dark. She's come to the tomb. I love that painting of her coming alone in the early morning. The sun's just coming up. She sees the stone has been removed from the tomb. She runs and goes to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved. And she said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they've laid him. And Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. And the two were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter. That's a nice little fact. John wants to get in there. <laughs> and the other disciple reached the tomb first. But in deference to Peter, the elder, the one who Jesus had given the keys in Matthew 16, he doesn't go in, he waits. John bent down to look in. He saw the linen wrappings there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head. The cloth was not lying with the linen wrappings. It was rolled up in a place by itself. The cloth that had been on the head of Jesus was not lying with the other wrappings. And we see old icons showing that, that the head scarf is separate. And what does that mean? We know that in John chapter 11, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, we saw that Lazarus came forth with linen cloths, and his feet and hands and his face were wrapped in a veil. His spices had wasted away. There was a stench, remember? And he had been in the hot sun for four days. He was dead as a doornail. He's wrapped in linens. And so if we take all the four Gospels together and the traditions, 
we can summate that there were a few cloths that were connected to Jesus. The cloth to clean the face, which is called the sedarium, the shroud, which is called the sindon, and the linen cloth. And different places claim to have these cloths. For instance, the Shroud of Turin claims that it is the linen that Jesus was wrapped in. And so much research, so much scientific research, and it's still developing ways they're testing and and aging and all the the different things. The breath-thin veil that covered his face has become known as the Volto Santa of Manopello. It's the cloth that was on his face, and it's housed in this church, Volto Santo di Manopello houses the holy face image and if you go there it only can be seen in certain light but it's an image on a piece of linen and it belongs to the Capuchin monks and some claim it to be the cloth that Veronica wiped the face of Jesus with then there's a third relic called the Ceridium of Orvedo and it's the face cloth with small blood-stained linen And this was a common thing to do, and we even see it in 205. The face of John Paul II was covered with a linen at the time of his burial, a thin linen face cloth. And a Jesuit priest from Germany has studied this extensively. He's an art professor at the Pontifical Gregorian University. He thinks that they have found the veil of Veronica. So this goes round and round in the scientific world, is it, isn't it? But it got extra attention when Pope Benedict XVI visited it in September of 206. And it's in this monstrance, the veil. And if you dim the lights and light it a certain way, you can see it. And so I just want you to know that, you know, those things are out there, different claims, and we don't know. But we do know that Simon Peter came. He was following him. He went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Now, the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw, and he believed. That's John. That's John. And all it took for John was to see the tomb was empty and he believed. He knew. He knew because he remembered what Jesus had said. In all those scriptures we looked up tonight, every gospel he said this was going to happen to him. When John saw it was gone, he knew. He knew. And for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They don't have the Holy Spirit yet. They don't really know what this all means. But John believed just by seeing an empty tomb. The disciples returned to their homes. There it is, the empty tomb. The linens are there. If grave robbers would have come, which often that did happen, they would want to steal the linens because the linens were worth a lot. This is fine linen burial cloth, and so they would bleach it white and resell it to someone else who had a loved one die. So the cloths were left there. This wasn't grave robbers. Plus, the tomb was guarded. Pilate had had it sealed in one of the Gospels. I think it's Matthew. Pilate has it sealed and guarded because they say he's going to come and steal the body and claim that he was resurrected, and this is going to be even worse than before. Now we see Mary of Magdala standing outside the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she bends over to look inside the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying. One at the head, the other at the feet. Which reminds us of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant with the two cherubim, the two angels. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. And she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? 
And supposing him to be what? The gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, please tell me where you've put him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rapone, teacher. The moment he called her name, she knew it was him. It was him. It was Jesus. It was Raboni. And Jesus said she wanted to grab onto him and hold him. And she said, do not hold on to me. Do not hold on to me. Because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. He's basically saying there, we're siblings. You're my sister. We have the same Father, God. We are all siblings of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the firstborn of a new creation. He's the firstborn son. And he has made a new creation for us. We're related. We're his siblings. And he doesn't want her to hold on. And that Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons, healed of seven demons, she becomes the apostle to the apostles. And she's a woman. And women weren't reliable witnesses. You had to have two or three, preferably male witnesses only in the Hebrew Jewish world. And she's a woman. And she's witnessed, she's the first to talk to Jesus in John's gospel. And she becomes the apostle to the apostles. It's amazing. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. I love that picture of her. I have seen the Lord. Think of the joy. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now many artists have painted this beautiful garden scene. And it's Mary seeing Jesus, talking to Jesus. Is it him, teacher, Rabboni? And then he says, touch me not. Don't touch me. Touch me not. Don't, don't, don't touch me. Don't touch me. There's a common thing. Don't touch me. Don't touch me. Don't touch me. Touch me not. Don't touch me. Touch me not. Now there's another reoccurring theme in these paintings. Jesus is holding something. There's a shovel. Another shovel, a rake, a hoe. Hmm. And they're in this beautiful garden. And he has a shovel or a rake or a hoe in his hand. Here he has a hat on to shield his face. (laughs) And and a shovel in the other arm. So I ask you, who was the very, very first gardener in the Bible? Adam. Who's Jesus? The new Adam. What was the very first garden? Eden. Eden. The new Adam has removed all the thorns and thistles of sin because he destroyed sin on the cross. And the new Adam has undone the curse of the ground. Adam's body, Eve's body, all bodies were trapped in the ground. The ground was cursed. There was no way back to the beatific vision. There was no way back to the Garden of Eden. But when he harrowed Hades on that holy Saturday in the tomb time, he freed mankind, this new gardener, this new Adam. He unbroke the curse. He ushered in the Father's greatest blessing, reversed the curse, freed all the souls, and made a way back to the Father. So you see the chasm. They lost the old garden, but he's going to get it back for them. He's going to crush the head of Satan on the cross. He's going to conquer death and rise from it. So he's the new Adam. That was part one of the Gospel of John, chapter 20, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.